Hello, Precision Insight Podcast listeners. This is your host, Dave Wolf with Genexus, and I'm thrilled to take you on yet another journey related to precision medicine. And today, I get to speak with Jenna Quinn again on part two. And today, we're going to be talking about maternal health and the role of precision medicine. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk about this. Before we get into this, though, yeah. in case listeners missed our last episode, can you tell the audience more, a little bit about yourself and how you started this journey in, in neonate pediatrics and women's yeah. health? Yeah. Yeah. So um, a little bit about me is I'm a wife um, and then a mom of three crazy little girls. Um, what I didn't really um, you know, elaborate on in the last episode was my grandfather was a pharmacist, um, so he actually was the reason behind me going to pharmacy school. My, my mom was a nurse, um, but when I applied, and um, by the way, my dad did call to double check that I did actually get accepted, which is the most insulting thing ever, but once <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of confidence in me. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, then my my grandfather is the large reason why I went with pharmacy. But in particularly, I knew regardless of whatever medical or avenue I went, whether it was nursing, physician, pharmacist, I always had the the math and science part of my brain. Yep. And the arts, I'm like dumbfounded by people who are artsy. They're amazing. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do pediatrics because um, I grew grew up, uh, there's a 10 years age gap between me and my, my youngest sister. And so um, growing up, there was so many times where I would watch her and um, I'd be the one, she had epilepsy. And so I would be the one giving the diastat or, you know, I was very much a part of my, my little sister's uh, medical care because, wow. um, you know, I was always a little bit, always acted a little bit older than I was. Um, I'm an old soul. So my parents by like 15 trusted me. Um, so we, she was such a large part of my life helping manage um, her, her medication administration um, from as young as like 14 onward. And so wow. that in combination with my uh, grandfather being pharmacist is how I landed in Peds pharmacy, which <laughs> I which gotcha. A niche yeah. and 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 you've you worked in, in large medical centers all across the philadelphia area right um, i did so for the past 11 years um i just officially went prn uh like six months ago but um for 11 years i was in um the a couple big hospitals um, in the Philly, New Jersey area as a, a PICU or a NICU pharmacist. I even dabbled in uh, and did a decent amount of gen peds and uh, ED uh, peds too, which is nice because it always kept me fresh on um, all the different uh, pediatric and neonatal disease states. Absolutely. That marketplace is uh, kind of the the best of the best as far as healthcare for pediatrics and neonates too. So you were in the right place to be practicing. The um, Then you launched this company. You, you said you've got four kids, four daughters under five, sorry, three. And, and you started a practice a year ago because your anniversary was? Yeah. Last week? yeah. So my anniversary was a year ago um, last week, which was 
which was eye-opening. So I had been talking about um, potentially doing this with my, I got, got started my entrepreneurial journey via MLM. Um, so uh -huh. I, I, she, I had an awesome mentor in MLM that when I was exploring, trying to find jobs with more flexibility, um, I just had like a hard heart with her. Like I, I might have to leave Pete's because there's no jobs outside of um, academia, which are like a full full-time plus job or, and there's no jobs outside of a hospital setting, which are, you know, they're, they're intense. And it's um, just by nature of the job, right? If you're going to pick you or NICU setting, you're going to be dealing with really sick kids and you're going to be working, you know, very, very, even if you work within your eight hours, they're, they're going to be, there's days where they're, they're really stressful. And quite frankly, seeing children get ill and, and pass away after being a mom of three got harder and harder. So I was having a hard heart with her. And I said, I think I'm going to leave and I'm going to take a geriatric position. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. And I don't want to retrain. And, and I'm not even sure if I like old people. Um, so yeah. I was having a heart to heart. Of course, I love them, but I'm saying my heart <laughs> is geriatrics. Right. Um, so uh, after talking to her, she said, well, what, what would you do if you could do anything? And I said, I'd, I'd launch a company that would help medically complex pediatric patients who really right now um, don't have access to a pediatric trained pharmacist. And for myself, I'm one pharmacist. I think there's 1,200 of us that are uh, board certified in the United States. I get wow. at least like 10 to 20 questions a day from you know parents who just had like a quick one-off about a dose of an over-the-counter med or a physician who just wanted to have a bouncing board who used to be my resident that's practicing you know all the way across the country um so i realized that there's a need for us to be more present as a, as a drug resource and that because there's there's not a lot of us that we really and especially in the remote work world now that we could actually see a lot of patients, um, even if they're not in our state and, and help a lot of these medically complex kids, which there's no wonderful definition. There's no wonderful literature on what we're doing, um, but we kind of adapted from the older population that medically complex is five or more meds and two or greater uh, disease states. So um, that's what I'm doing. So we're, we're, uh, one, one patient at a time, uh, really trying to help uh, the, the medically complex pediatric patients who just like geriatrics have a lot of polypharmacy um, and, and they're really just, they have a lot of room for a medication expert on their team. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned on uh, during our last conversation, in a year, you've already got 250 patients, which is Phenomenal. And, and they're not all pediatrics. There's some maternal health uh, yes. patients that you work with and, and friends and colleagues, I guess. Um, yes. What yes. are some of their unique challenges? You know, you're pregnant, you're breastfeeding, you know, you're taking these medications. Do you stop the medications? What are some of the unique challenges these women face? Yeah. So obviously um, my story before kind of what launched me into pediatrics, but um, I shared in the last podcast that I've been on Effexor now for, um, I don't know, since I was 16, I'm 33. So uh, one of the, the common 
things and and I even struggle with it personally you know sometimes you're you can be you know your patient's best advocate but when it comes to your own health you you're just like you you're not even rational right so I was I was trying to get pregnant with my my first daughter undergoing fertility treatments and and um before I even underwent the fertility treatments, I like was convinced that even I knew, even though I knew that um, pregnant patients who have um, substantial amount of anxiety um, and mental health burden, that they actually are significantly at risk of having preterm children. Even though I mm. knew that, and I knew that um, even though Effexor isn't one that's like extensively, extensively studied, I knew that SSRIs um, are studied in pregnant patients. And obviously some have more literature than others, like um, Lexapro and Zoloft in an abundant amount. But had a patient come to me and said, Jenna, I'm about to get pregnant. Should I go off my meds? I'd be like, are you crazy? Like the worst thing you could do when you're having hormone fluctuations and you're introducing fertility treatments in your body and would be to, to go off your meds. But of course I felt guilty. So I went off and it was like the worst five months of my life. I had panic attacks, anxiety. I became wow. agoraphobic and, and thinking of trying to function like that as a mom and pregnant, I was like, what are you doing? So I called my mental, my uh, fetal maternal medicine doc that I've worked with for, um, since I've been at, at my institution and just said, here's the meds I'm taking. I know you're going to say to stay on them, but I just need to hear somebody tell me that. Okay. Um, and he laughed. He was like, you know, better. He's like, you know, better than anyone <laughs> you're the else. Expert, right? What you just did was so stupid. And he was like, super, he's super down to earth. And I'm like, I know, but he, so I just needed him to tell me like your fetus and you are at so much more risk. If you stop these meds, you know, like sometimes we undermine mental health. And I always say, you know, you take a pill for diabetes, you take a pill for your blood pressure. Why is this any different? You know, it's a every day you wake up and you kind of have to fight it, right? You have to do your, what's in your toolbox for your mental health. And one of those things for me is meds. And one of those things for a lot of women is, is medication. And so I, through my pregnancies, a couple people, because um, whether it was like a primary care doc or somebody else would say, you have to come off these meds. Yeah. You know, you're, Even the OBGYNs probably, right? Uh, I had an OB MP say that to me. I did. Okay. Um, okay. And you know, the third, the third, uh, pregnancy in, I, I just laughed and said, you know, this is what I do. I know these meds are safe. I know my dose is a little higher. I have OCD. You need higher doses to treat OCD. That's just fact. I have, um, two healthy daughters. Thankfully, the Lord blessed me with the third healthy one. And I know, um, I kind of give the same spiel that if you're not treating your anxiety or your mental health, it's completely detrimental to the fetus inside you and, you know, the baby as they're born. And so patients that have, um, that do have anxiety and depression before um, they get pregnant, that that postpartum, they're at a way higher increase of, of relapsing with their anxiety and depression, regardless of on meds or not. So anyway, with, with my own personal story and really struggling to, I, I needed someone to say it's okay. And there, a lot of providers aren't comfortable with telling a pregnant patient whether to stay on or off their medications. And so 
you know, quite commonly, I would say at least once every two weeks, I get a call from a distressed mom. Oh my God, they told me to come off my Lexapro. Oh my God, they told me to call, come off my singular. How am I going to do this? I have the worst allergies. Someone the other day was an inhaled corticosteroid. Do you want to have an asthma attack and, and anaphylaxis, you know, and, and have fatal asthma attack and pass? So like, you always have to weigh the risk and the benefits and, and pregnancy is so unique in the way that obviously you're thinking of the the mom you're thinking of the baby but then also you have to take into account of all the various changes that go on in the body um, as as you're pregnant you have hormonal shifts you have expanded uh plasma volume, you have increased renal clearance, changes in protein binding, changes in hepatic metabolism, which is where it's interesting to connect pharmacogenomics and pregnancy with all these continuously changing, changing factors. And so um, there are dose changes um, and there are gene drug interactions that are really important for providers to know to um, optimally take care of, uh, you know, the fetus and the mom. You kind of alluded to it just now, but you had mentioned in a previous conversation we had about the changes of CYP enzymes, CYP yeah. enzymes during pregnancy and, and how it affects certain classes of drugs. Yeah. Another interesting fact is just from, from 90% of pregnant women take a prescription drug. And even when you take away the prenatals and the, and the iron supplements, still 70% of them take a medication and 30% of them are on five or more meds. Wow. So it kind of mm. gives you the, yes, they're a widely underserved population, but even as part of my perfecting peas, I've actually, um, you, you know, everything's takes a long time, but as pitching to OBs, like have us on call and have even primary care docs, like have us on call to say, you know, is this safe for this mom? Um, also, there's a lot of little caveats you can do to help the, the fetus and the mom, like for instance, with SSRIs, if they continue breastfeeding, they won't have that uh, withdrawal that you see. Um, and even uh, with, you know, like every, every, every medication is a little caveat that can, that can help the patients too. But, um, so yeah, so the SIP enzymes, uh, obviously change, uh, like, like everything else in pregnancy that I just talked about, um, the pharmacokinetics in general change. So, um, some of the drugs that we are, are commonly prescribing these patients are, um, the mom, if they've had a history or they're at high risk of having a preterm birth, we actually give them progestion. Um, and uh, specifically the 17 OHPC, um, we realized that with certain haplotypes, they actually had a higher risk of preterm births when they receive this 17 OHPC. So it's just a type of progestin. So um, mm. that there might actually be harm in giving these patients this preventative therapy, which is huge, right? Um, some other medications are tocolytic medications, which eventually, you know, they ultimately stop uterine contractions so that they, the mom doesn't go into preterm labor. Um, and 
you know, many of these tokyolytics are substrates of these drug metabolizing enzymes, specifically nifedipine, which is our calcium channel blocker commonly used in OB to stop contractions. Um, it's metabolized by the CYP3A family. Um, and recent studies have actually documented that the CYP3A5 polymorphisms um, can actually impact the concentrations of nifedipine in the maternal blood and obviously increase risk of failure or increased risk of ADRs. Um, similarly, another tokyolytic um, for, for preterm therapy is endomethacin, which is um, an NSAID. And um, this drug is metabolized by CYP2D9 and CYP2, sorry, CYP2C9 and CYP2C19. And they also identified if they had a SNP in these enzymes that they affected the, the concentration of the medications. Um, so, so if you had that data ahead of time for those three drug classes, or actually specific drugs, but those drug right. classes, you may make some therapeutic changes and, and prevent some of these eight adverse drug events or side effects. Exactly. So having that data on hand is critical, isn't it? It is. And um, even I thought this was interesting too, because I got this med, the steroid that they give betamethasone to the mom if they're at risk of preterm labor to help the, the baby's lungs develop a little bit faster. Um, those two are sip. 3A and 3A7, and they actually had differences in neonatal respiratory outcomes. So think these medications are affecting the mom, but then because they're affecting the mom and you know whether they're not working or for increased ADRs, they're in turn affecting the fetus too. So it's like, wow. it's two human beings instead of yeah. one. So even more reason to use this, um, this literature as it evolves. I mean, this is a very novel, novel thing as far as OB goes and, and pediatrics. And so even though I'm like only seven months in, I feel like I'm just starting to get comfortable. I think, I think it's, we're going to have more and more literature and, you know, in the beginning, anything's uncomfortable when you're not hundred percent familiar with it. Right. Um, but we have this data available to us that's evolving. We're going to, we have to use it. Absolutely. And, and you vet the clinical elegance of it and, 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 and ensure that that it does make clinical sense. And, and ideally, you know, modifying the medications for that patient, collaborating with the patient and the provider as part of your, your collaborative healthcare team that, you know, you may want to consider this in this situation. Do, do you find that during pregnancy, medication adherence is an issue or is no issue at all? Um, I think like my story obviously shows like the importance of it because I went off, well, I weaned myself off my meds, right? Cause I was like, oh my God, I feel so bad. I'm gonna be giving, I'm gonna be exposing this baby to this med. So I think, and and I talked to in, in just my years over time, um, I think there's this inherent mom guilt even before you have the child. And so you're like, even if you understand what it's for, um, the importance of, of the providers having your back and saying, you, you need this, whether it's an asthma med, whether it's um, for mental health, whether it's for blood pressure. As a maternal health uh, pharmacist, it's really important to educate people that 
you and your baby are better if you take this med. And I think moms near, need to hear that. And I think providers need to back them up. And if they're unsure, um, instead of saying, which is been a, a lot of my experience instead of a provider saying just stop it because you know it's better for you and baby if they don't know referring them to fetal maternal medicine or you know a, a, a fetal maternal pharmacist who can help navigate them um, through this is really significant and so I think knowing a lot of uh, moms or moms-to-be who have just completely stopped their meds is, is a very common thing because of, you know, just lack of knowledge out, out there and um, mom guilt that you feel that you're doing something wrong, even though you're not. Yeah. And, and, and going back, we talked a lot about education before in educating the patient as well as the other providers, but you know, making sure that you taper off certain medications uh, so you don't have those those side effects as well. If yeah. you do decide to discontinue it, what what is the right way to taper it down? Right. Uh, so, you you know, many of the meds you, you talked about uh, do have side effects when you stop it abruptly. Right. Um, and so that's it's key to the, the whole adherence piece, but it's also you're finding more and more evidence and you're being a student of that and seeking that out to, to substantiate, you know, what is the right clinical path to take in these situations. And the beauty of it is we have data now that we didn't have, we may have had, had it 15 years ago, but we're not utilizing it. Now it's at our fingertips and let's, let's optimize that. Yeah. and what are some other challenges you see with the, the uh, maternal health patients? So a lot of, a lot of questions um, that people give me, especially in their first trimester. I personally went through it until like 26 weeks with all my, my girls. Um, those girls just drain your beauty and everything, everything else out of you, I swear to God, so, um, is nausea and vomiting. And so hyperemesis, um, Gravis is something that we can really uh, use pharmacogenomics on and help mom navigate too. Again, there's this mom guilt, I'm nauseous and vomiting. I'm not supposed to take anything, but at a certain point, if the mom's vomiting too much and they're not keeping things down, then now they're malnourished. Now the baby's malnourished. So um, one thing too, is that, uh, you know, we can help use pharmacogenomics and the nausea and vomiting um, as well. So a lot of times we give moms uh, vitamin B6, uh, doxolamine, uh, you know, promethazine, uh, metoclopramide, and Zofran, just to name a few. And Zofran is, is one that's commonly used to, to hopefully abort or just minimize the side effects of nausea vomiting. And we know from the anesthesia literature that this is metabolized by CYP2D6 and that extensive mm-hmm. and ultra rapid metabolizers actually have a link of Zofran failure. Um, so another piece of information, and I have heard this from multiple, multiple women that like I'm taking Zofran, I'm taking eight milligrams or even crazier. They have continuous infusions of Zofran and they're like, it is not working. I was just continuing mm-hmm. to vomit. So, and know, why is that? Because they're ultra rapid, <laughs> extensive metabolizers. Exactly. Yeah. It's not working. <laughs> um, 
Also, there's polymorphic serotonin receptors, so your 5-HT3, that play a major role in nausea and vomiting. And that variance to this receptor are actually linked to increased nausea and vomiting due to increased response in serotonin binding. Um, and then that can also help us gauge the severity of nausea and vomiting. Uh, and then that can also help us use and lead us to different medications to control the nausea and vomiting than, um, you know, medications that act on the serotonin syndrome, um, serotonin receptors like Hundansetron. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, it's critical to have that. Now we have that data, let's use it. Um, exactly. And make it part of the practice. So the patients don't have to suffer. So the fetus doesn't have to suffer. Um, and you know, well, I, you know, you had mentioned, you know, high dose of effects or that you were on, but it was appropriate for you. It doesn't yes. mean it's appropriate for Susan. Right. Exactly. Um, it's all precision medicine, right? It's getting yeah. down to the individual and treating that individual and taking out some of that trial and error. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm, I lucked out because the first medication I tried worked and, that's, we know that 50% of patients, that's not the case. Um, so 50% of patients either have failure, whether that's adverse drug reactions or just it not working um, in the mental health realm. And so that's a large percentage of, of failure and it can be like discouraging. So I actually, once I got the right one, I, I wasn't coming off of it. So um, I think a lot of women need that, that tailored the tailored pharmacogenomic piece so that, you know, we're limiting, we're limiting failures, but also just, just need education that it, that it's okay. And, and that, that education out there is, is definitely lacking. So hopefully we can make it more robust, especially with now having pharmacogenomics at our fingertips, we can help you know, maximize uh, the effectiveness of tocolytics, of steroids, of, um, you know, anti-emetics. So uh, of, I'm sure the list is going to continue to go on and on. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love the work you're doing in that, that whole continuum from the, the neonate to the, the pediatrics. And then let's start with the maternal health to start with. I should have started with that. Maternal health through the neonate, through the pediatric, it's such a unique space that there's some evidence in that area, and you seem to be uh, carrying that torch, and I encourage you to continue carrying that torch. Uh, you're going you're gonna to save a lot of lives and, and make a lot of impact on, on individuals. You know, mental health is a big issue, not just with the pediatrics like we talked about in our last session, but mental health is... in. A, is a challenge sometime going through pregnancy. What are some of your, you know, you mentioned stay on the antidepressants, stay on the anti-anxiety medications, if they're appropriate for you. Any other pearls there? Yeah. So the other thing too is, which I didn't really dive deep into, I kind of gave the medication examples, right? And the enzymes that the medications affect, but also pregnancy itself affects a lot of the enzymes. So like SIP A3A4, uh, um, which is we know is the, one of the most abundant SIP enzymes that are involved in the metabolism of more than half of the approved drugs, it actually noted that there's an increased activity of that in pregnancy. Um, and so that is something that we have to, to keep in mind, knowing that there's increased activity. So um, 
they, a lot of these meds, um, similarly, before I jump to that, CYP2D6, we also know is another one that's, that's commonly used, and it's estimated 25% of medications, um, you know, go through that metabolic enzyme. And um, that is actually influenced in pregnancy as well. So with its activity in the beginning of the second trimester and continuing to increase in the third trimester. So women who are CYP2D6 extensive metabolizers actually have demonstrated higher activity during pregnancy. So, um, and then conversely, women who are CYP2D6 poor metabolizers have lower enzymatic activity during pregnancy. So that 2D metabolizer status was going to impact your efficacy of medications. Um, that, in addition with all the pharmacokinetic changes that are, are, are happening with your volume of distribution and your increased renal clearance and, and everything, um, I know, again, personal, but I had to go I had to step up my dose from the second and third. I could feel second and third trimester always. I can feel, I don't know if it's because it could be the placebo because I know it, but um, <laughs> it could there's be. There's a decreased efficacy in that second and third trimester. So um, a lot of these enzymes do change too. Their activity changes during pregnancy. And so um, that in addition to it also being the medications being affected by those certain enzymes and the change in the actual activity during pregnancy um, is something that obviously has to be considered. And between that second and third trimester, that's when you're gonna see a, a, a lot of medications you're gonna need increased or depending on, I should say really depending on their actual enzymatic activity, you may need more or less. Um, Correct. Depending the, on the individual too and how they metabolize those. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the one common one I see, which is really sad because um, I work with a large population of um, moms who are recovering addicts. And um, so they're on methadone and methadone is one that does need to be, it's pharmacokinetics are heavily, heavily affected in pregnancy and uh, people really need to, they actually need to increase their dose in the second or third, but you can, but almost like a week postpartum, you can actually, um, you can actually, you should step down or else the moms are snowed for lack Got of it. whatever yeah. word. So I'll have commonly, I'll have the pediatricians like comment on that mom must be getting high. And I'm like, I'm like, and then I'll go talk to the mom and I'm, she's, I'm like, did you, did anybody tell you to decrease your methadone? That's, yeah. that's actually the root causes because you know, they gave birth, their volume of distributions changing, their clearances changing, their enzymes are changing, having too much methadone in their system because they didn't make a, a dose change. Um, so again, understanding that too gives us a little bit more compassion um, to, to people as well and also gives them the information they need. Like you have to go to your addiction medicine specialist and ask them to cut your dose down because um, your needs change postpartum. Oh, great, great advice. And, and, and I want to thank you again for your time today. Um, any parting words for the, the innovative pharmacists and clinicians who are out there listening to this? Um, yes. If you're sitting on something and even though it's scary, do it because the patients need us to innovate. So whether that's, you know, getting more availability of us, but I think the, I think the patients really need, um, to have 
obviously all pharmacists, regardless of, of where they practice, um, and, and I know it's sometimes it's time restricted, but we have such an army of knowledge um, at our at our fingertips. And so we really have to make sure that we're using all of our knowledge um, to to our benefit, but also our patients benefit, too. And so if you're thinking of that crazy idea that you want to do that, you're not even sure is going to be successful, just try it. Um, I promise myself I'll give myself three years. And if after three years, I'm like, I'm not feeling this or it's not successful, then, you know, what's what's the worst that can happen type thing. So and already in this year, um, I've really, really enjoyed um, innovating and, and really finding a, a unique way to personalize medication and, and help a, a lot of patients. So and I'm certain you're going to be around much beyond three years as you continue <laughs> to grow your practice. I appreciate it. Lastly, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so I have um, two different ways. So you can go on my website, which is Perfecting Peds. Um, now that you know, the reason behind my company is because I have OCD. So Perfecting Peds was just <laughs> very, very <laughs> And now that we've talked about mental health, and people are like, how do you come up with the name? I'm like, every pediatric pharmacist I've ever met is a perfectionist and has some sort of OCD. That's um, right. <laughs> so perfecting p-e-r-f-e-c-t-i-n-g and then peds p-e-d-s uh, dot com you can fill out the contact form right there there's various ways to contact us directly on the website and then um the second the second uh being that i'm very involved in linkedin so my first name's jenna with one n my parents had us confuse everybody j-e-n-a uh last name quinn with two n's q-u-i-n-n um feel free to message me um i'm very active in the linkedin community thank you so much jenna and i look forward to to seeing what you do in the future thank you